Let's start class because uh, this is a critical class. We don't want to miss one moment in class. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you that your word speaks to our hearts, that it cuts through the confusion and it cuts through the, the uh, challenges that we face. And I just pray thee that as we open your word in class, that your spirit would speak to us. Give us principles that will make an eternal difference both in our personal lives and in our churches. Help us to have eyes enlightened by the Holy Spirit and divine discernment about the issues that we're facing. In Christ's name, amen. Seventh-day Adventist Church today is facing a time, I believe, of its greatest opportunity and its greatest challenges. When you look at what is taking place in many local Adventist churches. I think you can step back and say every wind of doctrine is blowing. You can look at a variety of topics that are taking place that are challenging local churches. Let me give you some examples. Topics that can be what I would consider to be on the ultra-right and topics that could be on the ultra-left. Um, you can go to some Seventh-day Adventist churches and there's a real debate over Trinitarianism. Um, there's a great movement on anti-Trinitarianism, the idea that uh, the Seventh-day Adventist church originally did not teach that uh, the Holy Spirit was a person and so forth. So, so you have that argument that some people raise. You go to other churches and there'll be pockets of people in parts of the country that believe that the Seventh-day Adventist Church ought to go back to teaching the feasts, that we've neglected that teaching and we need to go back and celebrate Passover and Pentecost and so forth. Then you will go to some churches that are kind of on the other end of the spectrum, that begin to question the integrity of Ellen White. Was she really a prophet? Sure, she was a good devotional writer, but was she really a prophet of God? Um, is the Seventh-day Adventist Church really the remnant church of Bible prophecy, or are we one of many churches on the landscape of churches? So you, you have all these questions raised. You'll have some pockets in different parts of the United States and the world that will emphasize what's called contemplative spirituality. They see the formalism that is taking place in many an Adventist church. They look to what they would believe as a more contemplative spirituality, trying to empty their mind, to be at peace, and so forth. So there's a certain element of that. There are some that would accept what they call the emerging church. So what we have today is this panoply of varying issues that the church is, is facing. It's not my intent this morning to take each one of these issues and deal with them in depth because any one of the issues that I mentioned might take um, a class of three hours, four hours, five hours to deal with them. Here's what my intent is so you know right at the beginning. What I'd like to do today is first look at some broad strokes and my objective in the class is this. By the time you leave here today, I want to give you tools and principles that will help you to be able to discern from a biblical standpoint whether something is biblically true or it's not. So rather than try to deal with each individual issue, I'd rather give you principles. It's like previously. 
there was a time that the Adventist church said, movies are wrong. Rather than giving our young people principles to discern why. And if you say this is wrong or that's wrong, then it's always, well, what about the next one? But if you underline certain basic principles that can be indicted by the Holy Spirit, then you are able to detect clearly. So what I'm going to try to do today is share with you some of the different issues the church is facing, but particularly we're going to look at principles. Now, are you looking at page one on the document? And I'll go back and forth in the document. False teaching should not surprise us. It should not surprise us at all that the church at times would face false teachings or heresy. There are those people that say, well, wait a minute. If the Seventh-day Adventist church is the true church, how could we possibly be facing this or that? Well, that argument could have been given in the New Testament with the Apostle Paul. Because the New Testament church faced false teachings. Take your Bible, please. If you have it, I sure hope you do. You may have your iPad, your iPhone, your whatever else eye you have, but I want you to use your eyes and look at the text of Scripture and not be texting. Are you with me, please? Acts, the 20th chapter we're looking at. Here's our point. False teachings should not surprise us. They did not surprise the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had left Ephesus and he had sailed to Miletus. He was on his way back to Jerusalem. And there in Miletus, Paul summoned the elders from Ephesus to come. He did not want to leave without giving them some counsel. Acts chapter 20, we're looking at verses 28 to 30. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he's purchased with his own blood. For I know this. Now, notice what Paul does not say. He doesn't say, I think this. He doesn't say, it's likely this, this should happen. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you some information in case this might happen. What does Paul say? I know this. After my departing, that is after I go from Jerusalem, leave the church at Ephesus, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He's speaking about persecution there, that persecution would come to the church. But then he shifts gears and he goes to verse 30. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up. Among yourselves. He's talking to the church leadership, among the elders of the church, among the pastors of the church, among the lay people of the church, among yourselves, among the church at Ephesus. Men will rise up. Speaking perverse things. What's perverse mean? What's another word for perverse? Is perverse straight or crooked? crooked, speaking crooked things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn you with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God into the word of his grace that's able to build you up. So Paul says to the New Testament church, do not be surprised when heresy comes. Do not be surprised when false teachings come. Because false teachings came into the church at Ephesus, or to the church at Philippi, or to the church at Laodicea, did Paul counsel believers to separate from the body in a smaller group and look back at the church of Ephesus and write a document at how they were false and they became part of Babylon? Was that Paul's counsel? 
He that has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That may be the most valuable thing you heard today. Paul's counsel to Christians was not to call Christians out from the main body of the church at Ephesus or Philippi to meet in a small group because certain false teachings came into the church. That was not his counsel. His counsel was to meet those false teachings biblically. Now, Ellen White confirms the counsel that Paul gave, a statement you do not have in your lecture sheet that I'd like you to write down. I saw this after I developed the sheet, or else I would have put it in. First Selected Messages, page 122. I make no apology in this class at all for using the writings of Ellen White heavily and extensively. If you believe that Ellen White is a messenger for the remnant, to clearly reveal to the church errors that will come in, then the use of her writings is perfectly legitimate for the last day church. Not only is it legitimate, it would be unwise not to use them. First, first selected messages, page 122. Notice what she says. We have more to fear from within than from without. That's a statement that we need to ponder, isn't it? We have more to fear from within than from without. The Apostle Paul would have resonated with that. As Paul talked to the church at Ephesus, and remember the Acts passage that we just read in Acts 20, that Acts passage reflects Paul's counsel to the church at Ephesus. Well, let's go to the book of Ephesians and uh, pick up a phrase that will become the theme phrase of our class today. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 4, and we're starting with verse 11. Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he himself gave to be, this is when Christ resurrected from the dead, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, uh, the, who are teachers. He, the word and teachers is probably not the best translation. It's the Greek word chi, which means that is or who are. So teaching pastors. So what's the function of apostles, divine administrators? What's the function of prophets that have been guided with divine vision? What's the function of evangelists or teaching pastors or shepherds? For the equipping of the saints, that's the believers. For the work of the ministry for edifying the body of Christ. Leadership in the church is to equip membership for service. That's Paul's point. Now notice verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about by what? Every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth how? In love. May grow up in all things unto him who is the head. Now notice, Paul says that we're not carried about by every wind of doctrine. In the seventh day Adventist church, before the coming of Jesus, every wind of doctrine will be blowing. See, the problem is this. Let's suppose I have numbers, and these are the numbers. Get ready to add this up, because I'm going to ask you what the, what the answer is. 7, 6, 3, and 13. 7, 6, 3, and 13. What's your answer? 7, 6, 3, 13. What is it? 
29. How many right answers are there? How many wrong answers are there? Give, give, me, give me the number of wrong answers. How many wrong answers are there? You see why the devil has an advantage? Truth takes one form. But the devil doesn't care whether he gets you off on the left or the right. He doesn't care if he gets you off denying creation. Or way off here on the right someplace, and I won't define how far the right is because I'll get somebody upset with me who believes that. I know my group well. <laughs> but maybe, maybe I should. Maybe God puts a bee in your bonnet that everybody in the Adventist church ought to be keeping the feasts. The devil doesn't care whether he gets you off way over there or way over here. See, if a truck is going down a mountain pass, you can hit the mountain on the right or you can get off the cliff on the left. But you're still off the road, right? So the devil, see, truth takes one clear form. But error takes many. So every wind of doctrine will be blowing. Look at the statement at the bottom of page one. Already the judgments of God are abroad in the land. You'll want to underline this. Already the judgments of God are abroad in the land. As seen in storms, floods, tempests, earthquakes, and perils by land or sea. Do we see some more of that today taking place? Or do, do we see that? Are those things taking place? Now, skip down to page two. Middle of the page. Middle of the page two. You'll see the bold print. To stand in defense of truth and righteousness when the majority do what? Do you see the bold print, page 2, first paragraph? To stand in defense of truth and righteousness when the majority do what? You're not seeing it. Oh, I see what the issue is. Page 2 is the back of page 1. Okay, you got it? Page 2 is where we are. To stand in defense of truth and righteousness when the majority what? Forsake us to fight the battles of the Lord when champions are few. This will be our test. Oh, it's a page one. Uh, that's, oh, I better get the right issue here. I got, I got another issue. Okay. So you see it there. Does everybody got it? Let's read it together. To stand in defense of truth and righteousness when the majority forsake us. To fight the battles of the Lord when champions are few. This will be what? Our test. Now, let your eyes go down two more paragraphs. Two more paragraphs. The days are fast approaching. It's the next section that's in bold. This is from an article Ellen White wrote extensively commenting on Ephesians 4. In, in this article, she's talking about Ephesians 4 and that statement that every wind of doctrine will be blowing. She says, the days are fast approaching when there'll be great perplexity, confusion. Satan clothed in angel robes will deceive, if possible, the very elect. Who are the very elect? Who are the very elect? God's church, right? But she says that if possible, the very elect are going to be deceived. Why? There'll be God's many and Lord's Mary. Every wind of doctrine will be blowing. So Ellen White takes Ephesians 4, verse 11, which she's talking about every wind of doctrine, and she applies it to the last days of earth's history. She applies it to the church today. So one of the agencies that Satan is going to use really effectively just before the return of our Lord is going to be false teachings. 
And these false teachings will enter the church and they accomplish at least four of the devil's purposes. And I've, I've outlined them here. Why would the devil bring heresy into the Adventist church? What would his strategy be? And secondly, why would God let it come? First, four reasons why the devil would bring it in. Number one, heresy often minimizes the significance of the three angels' messages and the uniqueness of heaven's last day message. So it often minimizes that. When heresy begins to come into the church, it often minimizes the uniqueness of a God-divine, God-raised-up movement. And if the devil can do that, he can blunt the edge of witness. Because if Seventh-day Adventists are simply one of multiple denominations on the face of the denominational landscape, why have a passion to go to the ends of the earth to prepare a world for the soon coming of Jesus? So that leads us to number two. Heresy effectively hinders mission. It hinders it in a variety of ways. It takes the cutting edge off, off a unique movement to prepare the world for the coming of Jesus. It also... When heresy comes into a church, and have you ever been in a local church that's been debating some theological issue? Whatever that theological issue is, whether it's anti-Trinitarianism, whether, uh, whether it's some issue of health, whether it is creation, whether you have one group believing in the emerging church and the other group not believing in it, what happens when some heresy comes into the church or some errant theology? You spend your time arguing, there's no unity, you lose your sense of mission, and you, and you lose that warm love and that commitment to, to the word. The unity which undergirds mission, I'm reading number two, suffers in the context of doctrinal heresy. Thirdly, heresy often undermines the authority of church leadership, casts dispersion on leadership. There's, there's some kind of subtle heresies that give the idea that, you know, the Adventist church is Babylon and, and that uh, leaders, you know, have sold out. And, it, and that kind of casts away your confidence. Four, heresy will shake out of the church. Many people are deceived by its falsehoods. That often happens. Church gets involved in some kind, whether it is an ultra-liberal left that leads people out to a more quote-unquote evangelical Adventism, or whether it is an ultra-conservative right that leads them out in another direction. Now, if that happens, why do you think God would allow some heresies to come into the church? Is there a ministry of heresies? Do you think if Adventism becomes Laodicean, apathetic, and complacent, God may allow heresies to come in to lead people back to their knees and back to the word. So there can be, see, you can do nothing against the truth but what? For the truth. And all things work together for good. So even heresy introduced by the devil, that is falsehood, can be used of God to lead his people to a deeper experience with him in prayer and in Bible study. But the devil wants to shake people out through heresy. Now, take your Bible, please. We're going over. I'm at the top of page three. You may be at the bottom of page two. I have the uh, King James Version. You have the Revised Standard Version of my text. You missed it, but that's okay. Okay. You see the heading. It says, The Adventist Church Impacted by False Teachings. We're going to go to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25 to 29. Hebrews 12, 25 to 29. 
we're looking there at Hebrews, and the book of Hebrews talks about a mighty shaking that is coming to God's people. Ellen White applies these passages to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're looking at Hebrews 12, 25 to 29, and there's a principle here you just don't want to miss. Hebrews 12, verse 25 to 29. Are you with me in it? See that you do not refuse him that speaks, for they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth. Much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice shook the earth. When did God speak from heaven and his voice shook the earth? When did that happen? You got it. This is a good class. I knew that they would give me the most outstanding class. It was from Sinai, right? Yeah, that's when God spoke from heaven. Ten Commandment law was written. So the context of this passage is the Ten Commandments. Okay, let your eyes drop down. Whose voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more. So in the context of God's law, in the context of the Ten Commandments, what does Revelation say? Revelation 14. Keep your finger here. I'll just quote it. Revelation 14, 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that do what? Keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. What about Revelation 12, 17? The dragon was what? Wrought with the woman, went to make war with those that keep what? The commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. So Hebrews 12, the once more shaking, is in the context of a remnant that keep the commandments of God. Okay, so we go. Verse 27. Now this, yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of those things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken remain. Look at verse 27. Verse 27 is the answer to every offshoot that ever was or ever will be. If you understand clearly verse 27... You will not be taken away by an offshoot. Let's go over it. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken. What happens to the things that are being shaken? Do they stay or do they go? They go. They're removed. The reason we're not interested in an offshoot is because offshoots shoot off. They do not remain. They do not remain. But notice here... Yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are shaken, as of the things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken do what? What happens to the things that can't be shaken, folk? What are they? They remain. And who, what's another word for those that remain? The remnant. You got it. So the remnant remain. Those that are shaken do what? They shoot off. Now follow me closely. God's method of purifying his church at end time is different than any method he's used down through church history. If you understand this, you will be saved from a million heresies, maybe not a million, but a lot of heresies. Let me explain. You help me here now. When God called Abraham, did he call Abraham to remain or was Abraham called out? Well, Abraham was called out. When Israel left Egypt, did they remain or were they called out? Okay. When Israel apostatized from God, did they remain or was the New Testament church called out? 
Does anybody know the Greek word for church? What's that word? Ekklesia. Ek is out. Ekklesia is called. So the church is, are the called out ones, okay? So God called out the New Testament Christian church from apostate, for when Judaism rejected the Messiah, okay? What the Jewish leadership did. Most of the early church were from the Jewish faith. So, okay. When Protestantism eventually apostatized, and you have that long period of the Dark Ages, and God moves, he says Babylon is fallen, and he calls out a what? Remnant. So God's pattern throughout history has been when the larger body drifts from his purpose, when the larger body disobeys his will, when the larger body becomes amalgamated with the world around them, he does what? What does God do? Will there have to be some time where the calling out process stops? Because if you have a remnant and you call out a movement from the remnant, will there be some point where that remnant apostatizes and you have to call out a group from that and you have to call out a group from that? And you, you get my point, right? Here's the point. God's method of purifying his church at end time is not a calling out, it is a shaking out. That's the fundamental difference. The wheat and tares will grow together until what? The harvest. So rather than a calling out of the remnant, there is no remnant within the remnant in Scripture. Rather than calling out, God will allow heresy to come in as one of the means of shaking out lukewarm complacent. The church may appear as about to fall, but it does not fall. What does Ellen White say? It remains while the sinners in Zion are sifted out. So you will get people that are ultra conservative on the right, and they will say, look at this certain apostasy. God is calling out a new movement. But what I've studied with you today shows clearly that the method that God will purify is not a calling out, but a shaking out. Let's go back to our document. And um, you're looking there. I'm on page three. You may be on the bottom of page two. Testimonies to Ministers, page 112. Testimonies to Ministers, page 112. When the shaking comes, and I'm again in the bold print right under the text. When the shaking comes, by the introduction of false theories, these surface readers anchored nowhere are like shifting sand. They slide into any position to suit the tenor of their feelings of bitterness. So there's going to be a shaking. And what is going to bring that shaking into the Adventist church? False theories. So if, here's a profile of what we should expect. Stepping back and saying, let's look at a profile of what we should expect in the world, what we should expect in the church just before the coming of Jesus. In the world, we should expect natural disasters, famines, fires, flood. We should expect political uncertainty. We should expect economic uncertainty in the world. We should expect everything around us to be uncertain. Where sociologists, philosophers, political leaders look at the world and they say, what are indeed, what are the answers? What are the solutions? 
then we should expect as well in the church the devil introducing a variety of false teachings that appeal both to conservatives, moderates, and those that are more liberal. We should expect that to happen. That should not surprise us. Heresy should drive us to our knees to know Christ, to be anchored in Christ. Heresy and false teaching should drive us again to study the word personally. And we should expect a great shaking. As that shaking occurs, God uses it to purify his church. He will pour out the latter rain power on his people. And although multitudes will go out, we will see tens of thousands come in. And the earth will be lightened with the glory of God. Now, there is a statement that I really hesitated putting in. And I thought to myself, I don't know if I should put this statement in. And as I thought about it, I felt impressed by the spirit that I better not leave it out. Dare I put it in, but dare I leave it out. The statement is the next statement in the paragraph. And I'm not going to read it all. I'll leave that to you. Well, maybe I will. Satan has made his boast of what he can do. You can see it here. You see the statement? Satan has made his boast of what he can do. He thinks to dissolve the unity which Christ prayed might exist in his church. So one of Satan's greatest goals is to do what? What is one of Satan's greatest goals? To destroy unity by bringing false teaching in. Okay. He says, I'll go forth and be a lying spirit to deceive those that I can. I mean, what a strategy of the enemy. He says, I'm going to be a lying spirit to criticize and condemn and to falsify. So the devil will come into a church. He will criticize leadership. He will falsify. He'll, he'll help to misconstrue Satan's statements that are made. Let the son of deceit in false witness be entertained by a church that has had great light, great evidence, and that church will discard the message the Lord has sent and to receive the most unreasonable assertions and false suppositions and false theories. Satan laughs at their folly, for he knows what the truth is. Next sentence. I will not comment on it. I'll simply read it. It's something to ponder on and pray over. Many will stand in our pulpits with the torch of false prophecy in their hands, kindled from the hellish torch of Satan. Many, many will stand in our pulpits with the torch of false prophecy in their hands, kindled from the hellish torch of Satan. The challenge that you and I have is to see something that is not in harmony with what we think ought to be true and say, ah, and become unusually critical of that individual. The other danger is to be so asleep that we don't know how to detect what may be coming upon the church. And that's what I want to share with you in the, in the rest of our class. Remember, the theme of our class is every wind Every wind of doctrine is going to be blowing. Well, what are some of those winds? I've identified about five of those winds for you. The first wind I call the dust storm of doubt. The dust storm of doubt. Every wind of doctrine, okay? I'm going to read the first paragraph. Have you ever been in a dust storm? Incidentally, anybody here ever been in a dust storm? Who's been in a dust storm? What's the big problem of a dust storm? You can't what? See. So when you're in a dust storm, you're driving down a road... You have difficult vision becomes a difficulty, doesn't it? So, have you ever been in a dust storm with the wind blowing fiercely across the prairies? Dust storms obscure vision. They make staying on the right road nearly impossible. They create confusion and make proper decision-making difficult. If the devil can persuade us 
to doubt God's word or question his revealed will, he knows we're on a pathway to apostasy. See, doubt is like a dust storm. In a dust storm, you can't see clearly, you become confused. When you begin to doubt, what happens? When you doubt, you become confused. Can you think of two times in the Bible where the devil used doubt in an attempt to lead into sin? One time he was successful and one time he wasn't. Okay, two times in the Bible, the devil led into doubt. Adam and Eve. How, remember there in Genesis 3, God said to Eve, Has God said... Yeah, Satan said to Eve, thanks, you corrected the preacher. That, that was good. That was just a test to see how awake you were. <laughs> now the preacher has to be honest. The preacher misspoke. Okay, we're going to look here. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, has God said? Now notice, here is the question. Has God said? What is the devil doing? What's his strategy? insinuating doubt in what? The Word of God. Now, the devil is successful there. Can you think of another time in the Bible that the devil tried to insinuate doubt and he wasn't successful? You got it. This is a good class. In the wilderness, right? What did he say to Jesus? If you are what? The Son of God. What was he trying to do? What was his strategy? To insinuate doubt. And once he could get Jesus to doubt the divinity, his own inherent divinity, he could get him to fall, right? So here is the devil's strategy to insinuate doubt. Let me give you three specific areas where I think the devil tries to insinuate doubt. First, the first 11 chapters of Genesis. His doubts will come like this. You know, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, I mean... Can you really take those literally? Um, was this, I mean, sure, Moses was guided by God, but was this his kind of his reflection of what he believed about creation, but not really the actual fact, because the Bible really isn't a scientific document. It is a book. You see how the devil's strategy comes? What does he do? He insinuates what? Doubt. And if the devil can insinuate doubt about creation... Then he insinuates doubt about the entire Bible. If he insinuates doubt about the flood, whether it was a universal flood, then how do you relate to Jesus' statements about the flood? How do you relate to Jesus' statements about creation? So if you doubt the 11 chapter, first 11 chapters of Genesis and say, this was just the reflection of what Moses thought, but science today is more enlightened than that. If that is your position... What that leads you to do is cast doubt, A, on the Bible, whether it is indeed the inspired Word of God, an accurate record of things. It leads you to cast doubt on the Ten Commandments and the Sabbath, which refer back to creation. It leads you to infer doubt on Jesus. So one area that you can expect doubt to be inferred on is the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Because if they fall, the Word of God falls. If they fall, the teachings of Jesus are brought into credibility. If they fall, the Sabbath falls. So you can expect that to come. Here's another area that is very much like that. And that is the concept of the remnant. You know, 
God did raise up the Seventh Adventist Church, and the argument goes like this. God raised up the Seventh Adventist Church, but it's one of many churches. We have our contribution to make, and so, much, so do other churches to make their contribution. And uh, once you begin questioning the remnant, then you ask yourself, why did I leave my job to become a Sabbath-keeping Adventist? You know, why? why what, what significant is, if a, if a person, you know, I had to make this decision. I was part of a Catholic youth organization at 17 years old. We had 500 young people in our Catholic youth organization. I was the captain of the Catholic basketball team. Our parish had probably 5,000 people in it in Norwich, Connecticut, St. Patrick's School. And I heard the Adventist message. And I had to make a decision. Would I become part of a little group? We had 40 people in our church and almost no youth at all. None. Zero. And we met in a Masonic temple in a rented room. Was I going to leave... 500 young people and a basketball team that I was the captain of just to join some other church that had a little bit of truth? But I'll tell you what appealed to me. That God had raised up a movement of destiny around the world. And that the Seventh Adventist Church was a divine movement of God. And when I went and met in that little room of 40 people, I had that sense that I had brothers and sisters and countries all over the world, and that God had a message that he was going to impact the world. So here's what you can expect in this dust storms of doubt. How do you detect heresy? Here's how you detect it. If I were with a less sophisticated group, I would call it the smell test. But since this group is a little more upmarket at ASI, I have to think of a different way to phrase that. I don't know. I'm going to use the smell test anyway. Dust storms of doubt. You give it the smell test. If, if it smells like it's inferring doubt, doubting the first 11 chapters of Genesis, doubting the remnant movement, if it smells like that, go find a place where the smell is better. I mean, you know that it's leading to serious questions, okay? In this area of doubt, there is one other area that the devil is going to use. And uh, I have listed the statement further in your document. But because I need it now, I won't worry about the page, but I'm going to come over and try to pull it from here. Okay, here it is. First selected message is page 48, okay? It's, it's on about the second to last page, but don't worry about finding it. You'll have it in your document. Uh, okay, page 7 or 8 around in there. But again... Here it is, the very last deception of Satan. Now, when I read a statement from Ellen White that says the very last deception of Satan, what do I know? The very last deception of Satan will be, will to be made make of none effect the testimony of the Spirit of God. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Satan will work ingeniously. Now, Satan is a genius. Ah, great, thank you so much. Satan will work ingeniously in different ways and through different agencies to unsettle the confidence of the remnant people in the true testimony. I don't want you to miss that. If you can't find it, you have it in your document. But what is the last deception of Satan? What is the last deception of Satan? To make of what? Now, does he say, does Ellen White say, I want you to notice the words, make of what? non-effect. How do you make something of non-effect? You use a sophisticated method to make it of non-effect. You know what the sophisticated method is? Oh, I believe that Ellen White, oh sure, 
Desire of Ages is a wonderful book. I mean, you know, I really get inspired when I read it. You see the argument? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. See, it's not that Ellen White is a false prophet, but you make it of non-effect by denying its teaching and biblical authority. That's what you do. So the, the way you make it of non-effect is denying its teaching authority. So one of the last deceptions is what? To make of non-effect the Spirit of God. So dust storms of doubt. If the devil can do these three things, he knows that he can accomplish his ultimate goal. Number one, to get God's people to doubt creation. Because if you doubt the first 11 chapters of Genesis, it leads you to doubt the entire Word of God. Number two, to doubt remnant theology. Once you begin doubting that, then it takes the cutting edge off evangelism, off witness. Number three, to doubt the spirit of prophecy, to make it of non-effect. Anything that attempts to do that, you know, is creating, is part of the dust storms of, of doubt. Okay? Now, some people don't have document. I need a couple of people to help me right now. If you don't have a document, husbands, wives that gave yours away, we're giving you back. Okay? We're going to move through our teaching process. So we looked at dust storms of doubt. We are going to proceed from dust storms of doubt right now. We're going down to, and notice the devil's first deception. What was the devil's first deception with Eve to get her to do what, everybody? To doubt. What was the devil's attempt on Jesus to get Jesus to do what? To doubt. What are three areas that the devil's going to work in today? Creation, the flood, to undermine the word of God. The remnant theology, to undermine the great mission of the church. The spirit of prophecy, to keep us from the mission and message that we need. Okay, second great wind. What is the theme of our class? Every what? Every what is blowing? Every what is blowing? Wind of doctrine. Second great uh, heresy that will come. The pestilent-laden breezes of heresy. Pestilent-laden breezes of heresy. Okay. There are some diseases. Do you see where I am, everybody? Somebody give me the page. What page are we on? Page three. Okay. Pestilent-laden breezes of heresy. There are some diseases that are airborne. An airborne disease is any disease that's caused by pathogens transmitted through the air. The pestilent-laden breezes of heresy rapidly travel from one person to another, from one church to another, causing spiritual disease and death, leaving conflict and division in their wake. Now, I want to look at some counsel that Paul gave young Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Please take your Bible, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is an interesting one. It's one that is often overlooked. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And you're looking there, I'm trying to give you tools that will help you to understand. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2, verses 14 to 19. So 2 Timothy 2, verse 14 to 19. Remind them. Now Paul is counseling this young preacher to establish churches that are doctrinally strong, that are Christ-centered. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord... Not to strive about words to no profit, to ruin the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself, approved of God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Have you noticed that each time the Bible talks about heresy, it often links that with the word of truth? So what is the answer to heresy? It is saturating your mind with the Word of God. Okay, we continue. 
but shun profane and vain babblings, they'll increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like a cancer. Hymenius and Philetus are of this sort. Now, here's what I want to propose to you right now. Paul names two people. Who were they? Who did he name? Hymenius and Philetus. Here's my question. What did Hymenius and Philetus teach that was so heretical? And is there any application of that for the church today? Next verse tells you. Who have strayed concerning the truth. So were Hymenius and Philetus on target or off target? Off target. What did they do according to the Bible? They strayed. Concerning what? The truth. Saying that the resurrection is already past and they overthrow the faith of some. So what was the heresy of Hymenius and Philetus? They said something happened. What did they say happened? The resurrection has already done what? Past. Was there a resurrection? Okay. Notice what, and they were speaking of the resurrection of the dead, not Christ's resurrection, okay? So they said the resurrection is already past. Would there be a resurrection in the future? So they got the event right. Follow me now. They got the event right, but what? The timing was wrong. Is it possible that the heresy of Hominius and Philetus could ever impact Adventism? There's no eschatological judgment in the future. Some will say that judgment took place on the cross. The heresy of Hominius and Philetus. An event that is in the future is labeled to the past. See, here's the heresy of Hominius and Philetus. It is the misunderstanding of timing. You may have the right event, but you may be off on time. When, when you introduce into the church speculative issues of timing, it's the heresy of Hominius and Philetus. That's what that's all about. So that you can look at that at creation. Oh, creation took place thousands of years in the past. You know, millions, millions, millions of years in the past. Timing's off. You know, timing's off. Timing in the Bible is critical. Uh, six days God created the heaven and the earth, seventh day rested. If you take the six days of creation and you bring them in thousands of years of periods, what are you going to do with the seventh day Sabbath, as we sent earlier? So, so this is a very fascinating passage um, for those who, who fail to understand issues that have to do with timing. Um, I want you to, to look at one other aspect of timing, and I'm gonna, I, I think I'll come to it later, but essentially pestilent-laden breezes of heresy. Heresy infects a local church. It could be false biblical teachings, it could be issues of timing, it could be going beyond what God says in his word. There's another way that the devil focuses as well. And that's the fiery winds of fanaticism. What is fanaticism? How is it defined? You have it in your document. Fanaticism is often based on an emotional type of religion. It emphasizes feelings above God's word. Signs and wonders become the essence of faith. Miracles become the sum of religious experience and a sign of God's favor. Now, the devil is going to use miracle signs and wonders in a powerful way in the last days. You know that to be true from Matthew and Revelation. 
Let's just look at one passage in Revelation that I think is quite an amazing passage. It's Revelation chapter 19. We could have looked at Revelation 13, the devil makes fire come down from heaven, works miracles in sight of men. But I'm interested in this passage in the Revelation 19 verse 20. It talks about the coming of Jesus, the final destruction of Satan. And Revelation 19 verse 20 says this, Then the beast was captured. And with him the false prophet, who works signs or miracles in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those that worshipped his image. What was the agency that the devil used in the last days to deceive those that received the mark of the beast? What agency did he use? Signs, wonders, or, or miracles. Well, Seventh-day Adventists will be too wise ever to be taken by the miracles of Satan, won't they? Look at the next reference in your Under Fiery Winds of Fanaticism. Second Selected Messages, page 53. Wonderful scenes. Are you with me? Do you see this? You should be on page 5 around. Got it. Page 4. Okay. I'm two pages ahead now. My notes. Woo. You see, that's why when you get older, you've got to make the print bigger so you can see it without your glasses. Okay. None of you understand that. Wonderful scenes with which Satan will be closely connected will soon take place. God's word declares that Satan will work miracles. He will make people sick and then will suddenly remove from them his satanic power. Isn't that just like the devil? Isn't that just like the devil? To make people sick, they will be regarded as healed. Next sentence in the bold. Please read it with me. These works of apparent healing will bring Seventh-day Adventists to the test. What, are, what is one of the things the devil is going to use to bring Adventists to the test? False what? Miracles. Does God work miracles? Can God work miracles? Will we see miracles of healing in the last days? But will God work miracles for everyone that is sick? Here's a key, a critical component. You know, some time ago... I, uh, about a year ago now, in fact, I was, had a few health problems and went to my physician. And it was at the University of Maryland, and my physician, internist, teaches at the University of Maryland, brilliant fellow, typically doesn't take private patients, but because of a friend who is the dean of the medical school in the University of Maryland, took me as a patient. Checked every vital thing. He said, Mark, you know, there's something going on. I'm not sure what, and um, I... Um, I want you to see a, a top oncologist, a friend of mine here. So I, I left his office and was walking to another, walking down a street in the, at the University of Maryland, and I was thinking, oncologist. I mean, that's not gynecologist. On, on, oncologist. Now, he's sitting over there, you know. I'm thinking in my brain, oncologist, you know, what's that? I said, wait a minute, this guy's suggesting that I may have cancer. You know, I, I mean, I can't. I mean, I'm a vegan vegetarian. I mean, I mean you know, this, this is amazing. You know, I mean, I mean, I exercise. I mean, Lord, this couldn't be to me. You know, and, and if it is, Lord, you're going to heal me. I know that. And all of a sudden, it came over me. And I thought, the issue with God is not your healing. The issue with God is you're giving him glory. And I made a decision on a street in Baltimore, Maryland, that if I die, I die. That's okay with me. Not okay with my wife. She said, Mark, I'm praying for your healing. <laughs> I said, look. And she prayed for I said, look, God, in all this experience, every doctor I meet, I'm going to give glory to you. Every doctor I meet. Because none of us know that we have, we have the next 24 hours to live. 
I mean, who in here can say, hey, I'm going to be alive two weeks from now or three weeks? You don't know that. So I said, Lord, if you want to heal me, that's fine. But I know this. I got atheist physicians that I pray with. I come out of some treatment that I'm in in some hospital. And I say to the nurses, hey, look, I'm half asleep. Hey, look, can I pray with you? You know, giving out books. I said, God, if you want me to be a witness at that hospital, to give glory to your name of people that I'd never meet before, sure, I want to be healed naturally. But the most important thing is for me to give glory to you. And thank God my health is stable today. Thank God. I, I praise God. I still preach occasionally, like 30 times the last 60 days. You know, But, but here is the thing. The issue is not demanding God to work a miracle so I can live however I want. When I get sick, I made three decisions. Number one, I wanted my life to glorify God. And I would seek him for whatever he wants to do with my body. Number two, that I would look at every medical treatment that was in harmony with what I believe my own philosophy of health is because I believe God uses modern medicine. And number three, I would do everything naturally I knew what to do. That I would follow three strains. A spiritual approach, a medical scientific research-based approach, and a natural approach. I'd do everything we could to do that. But what's going to happen in the last days, and I want to come back to that, these works of apparent healing will bring Seventh-day Adventists to what? The test. I'm going to share with you a conviction. And here's what my conviction is. The Seventh-day Adventist church today is poised in many places to be on the verge of a false revival. Now, let me tell you why I say that. If you have a church that is complacent in Laodicean, where people come Sabbath after Sabbath and there is little spiritual life, the yearning for the heart is spirituality. So what will the devil do? He will bring in a form of either Eastern mysticism, one possibility. The other thing the devil can do is as a reaction against cold formalism, he can bring in fiery fanaticism. So the devil doesn't care if he gets you in cold formalism where you don't have a heart burden for Christ or he gets you in fiery fanaticism. How does he get you in fiery fanaticism? Your heart longs for something more spiritual. So he introduces, at times through music, an emotional form of religion that is not word-centered, but it's person-centered. And so when you're focused on a me form of religion that's person-centered, and that person-centered religion drifts away from a biblically foundational-centered religion, it opens you to substitute experience for substance. It opens you to substitute the solid foundation of the word. See, Seventh-day Adventists believe not in preaching a 12-minute homily on Sabbath morning that make people feel good, but Seventh-day Adventists believe that there's power, life-transforming power in the word of God. And that when you open the word and people come to study the word, one of my, my greatest concerns about what's going on in May and Adventist Church today is that very few people at times bring their Bible. 
and there's a short homily, but to get up and spend time studying the word and people in the word underlining a text and, and, and taking notes on the text. I mean, I was in a church in China, 2,000 members in that church, and that was the smallest church in the city. The other church had 6,000 members. But it was in this, this church in Shenyang, the, the first church we went to there, uh, 2,000 members. They had no heat in the church. The church sat about uh, 600, and there, there were probably 1,500, 1,800, 2,000 people there. They were in a hall upstairs, a hall downstairs, sitting on the stairs. Uh, there was no heat. It was 27 degrees below zero outside. I mean, they're sitting in the church, coats up in their ears, hats pulled down, but they got their Bibles out, their notebooks out, the preacher is preaching, and they're studying the Word of God. See, there's something about the Bible that is life transformational. How does the devil, how does the devil get us off track? Laodicean complacency, cold formalism, prepares the mind for a sensational type of religion based on experience that is not life transformational from the word, often accompanied by music that creates the atmosphere for this experience. So I want you to study your notes on fanaticism here, fiery winds of fanaticism. Then you'll notice the cold winds of formalism. We're going to skip that because I've got 15 minutes left. You can read that. Next section, gentle zephyrs of Laodiceanism. You're going to be interested in that. Now, I'm going to go to the section. I make four points or five points here. I'll give you the hallmarks of false teachings. I'm on page eight. You're probably on page six, right? Oh, man, we got it. False teachings often come about. So here are your hallmarks of false teachings. Here they are. False teachings often come about in the form of so-called new truth. Okay? Often, some will say, we want to introduce new truth. And they will come in that area. Council's, uh, Christ's Object Lessons, page 127, is really helpful in this. In every age, there is a new development of truth, a message of God to the people of that generation. The old truths are all essential. New truth is not depend, independent of the old, but an unfolding of it. It is only as the old truths are understand, understood that we can comprehend the new. When Christ desired to open to his disciples the truth of the, his resurrection, he began at Moses and all the prophets. You start with the foundation of truth that God has unfolded to his people. Anything that detracts from that, you know, is not in harmony with God's word. So false teachings often come in the form of old truth, uh, a form of new truth. Secondly, false teachings often involve a reapplication of time prophecies. You'll find this in Adventism today. People will look at Daniel 11 and they'll say, what about the 1200 da-da-da? What about the 1,335 days? And you get this reapplication of time prophecy. You'll say, look, from the National Sunday Law to the time of the end, it's going to be this. They'll look at, uh, they'll look at Revelation, and they will say, uh, in Revelation 17, and they'll say, well, wait a minute, here are the, 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 the ten kings, and, and here are the, the ten horns, and here are the seven powers, and these are seven popes from here to here, and we've got this thing calculated. And, oh, well, we won't say the day of Christ coming, but this time, and I've got this time period calculated. I'm going to read you a statement that's going to help you with every heresy that has to do with time. Ellen White is commenting on Revelation 10, verse 7. Now, Let's look at Revelation 10, verse 7. 
what I want to do is give you principles to see. Principles to see. Revelation 10, verse 7. This is an amazing principle that will help somebody here today. Revelation 10, verse 7. But in the days, verse 6, verse 6, verse 5. I was going to read verse 7, but verse 6 led into it, and verse 5 leads into it. Revelation 10, verse 5. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his hand to heaven. Now let me ask you a question. When an angel lifts up his hand to heaven, what is that all about? It's a what? Solemn oath. Are you going to debate with the angel that lifted up his hand to heaven in solid oath? How many want to debate with him? If the angel lifts up his hand to heaven in solemn oath, I don't want to debate with him. Do you? Okay. But some of you are debating with him. No, I hope you're not. I hope they didn't come to my class. And swore by him who lives forever and ever. Now the angel lifts up his hand to where? Heaven. And what does he do? He swears. If an angel swears, does he lie in that swearing in the sense of oath? Does he lie in that? Who does he swear by? Him who lives forever and ever, and created heaven and earth that are in it, and the earth and the things that are there in it, that there should be King James Version. Tell me what the word is. Time no what? Longer. So, an angel lifts his hand to heaven and he swears there'll be time no longer. What does he mean? Prophetic time ran out in 1844. There'll never be a test for the people of God again on time. Time is no longer relevant. Now let me read that to you. That's going to save you from some heresies that'll come into the church. Here it is. Um... Seventh Bible Commentary, 971. This time which the angel declares with a solemn oath is not the end of this world's history, neither of probationary time but of prophetic time. When did prophetic time run out, everybody? 1844. Which should precede the advent of the Lord. That is, the people will not have another message upon definite what? Time. After this period of time reaching from 1842 to 1844, there can be no definite tracing of prophetic time. The longest reckoning reaches to the autumn of 1844. After 1844, there is never again a message that is tied to specific dates. What is the issue since 1844, the coming of Jesus? The preparation of a people that reflect the character of God to a waiting world and a watching universe. What is the issue? It is the spread of the gospel to the entire world. So we are not dependent on a time chart that figures out how many popes there are. We are not dependent on a reapplication of Daniel 13.35. Today, the call of God is a call to our knees. It's a call to repentance. It's a call to know Christ. It's a call to reflect his righteousness. It is a call to spread his gospel. God is not waiting on further fulfillment of time prophecies because if he was, if he was, then Ellen White's statements that the Lord could have come ere this would have been inaccurate. But if the issue is an experience with God on the part of God's people, if the issue is the proclamation of the gospel, you see how that makes all the difference. Okay, false teachings. Number one, they come in the form of what? Often new truth. Any new truth must be based on what? Old truth. Two, false teachings involve a reapplication often of time prophecies. Okay, three, false teachings often cast away confidence in established truths. I thank God for the gift of closed-mindedness. (laughs) 
You know, we live in an age where people say, everybody ought to be what? Open-minded. Oh, yeah, tell that to your wife, sir. I've got to be open-minded. You know, I gotta, uh, uh, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> Don't you settle some things in your mind? When you got married, you settled it, right? Do you have to wake up every Sabbath morning and say, well, now, is the seventh day of the week the Bible Sabbath? You got to wake up and say that? Did you settle that thing? Praise God you settled that, right? When you're eating with your business colleague and the bacon is passed by you, do you say, well, now, let's see. I better go back and restudy that issue to be sure I'm right. Do you do that? Why not? Because you what? Settled it. You settled it, right? False teachings often question established biblical truths. Notice what Ellen White says. Love it. You know, Hebrews says, cast not away your confidence. There is no change in the features of our work. It is to stand as clear and distinct as prophecy has made it. We're enter it we are to enter into no confederacy with the world, supposing that by doing so we could accomplish more. If any stand in the way to hinder the advancement of the work in these lines that God has appointed, they will displease God. No line of our faith that has made us what we are is to be weakened. We have the old landmarks of truth, experience, and duty that we are to stand firmly in defense of our principles in few view of the world. So, the idea is settled in our mind. You don't have to question that which you've studied that is integrable truth. It's part of the foundation. Sure, we're going to keep growing. Sure, our minds are open to expanding our understanding of things like the sanctuary and the Sabbath and hell. Sure, we, there's no place we don't stop growing. But there are some foundational truths that become fundamental. When you see those truths being questioned, when you see the confidence being cast away in those truths, when you see those truths being minimized and weakened, what does that tell you? It tells you that that's not the way you want to go. Notice those next two statements. The enemy will bring in false theories, such as the doctrine that there is no what? Sanctuary. This is one of the points on which there'll be a departing from the faith. So you know what's going to happen. When you hear, well, do you really believe there's a sanctuary up in heaven up there? I mean, come on now. Heaven is vast. If there's no real sanctuary, is there a real God up there? You know, if there's no real sanctuary. See, the Bible is so clear. Of the things spoken, we, this is the sum. We have a high priest in the true tabernacle. You know what that word true is in Greek? It's aletheus. And you know what that means? The original the genuine, the authentic. Sure, the sanctuary in heaven is not exactly the same as the sanctuary on earth. The sanctuary on the earth is a pattern. If you see my shadow, I hope you don't think that's me. I mean, I may look like my shadow a little bit. So the earthly sanctuary is a shadow. We don't believe that that is exactly precise like the heavenly sanctuary, but I'll tell you something. There is a real sanctuary up in heaven. There's a real sanctuary up there in one of the departings of faith. Okay, fourth, false teachings come in the context of a new spiritual experience based on subjective feelings. Beware of any so-called religious experience that is based on feeling and not the Word of God. 
is dangerous. Five, false teachings often question church authority and church organization. Um, I love the last part of that statement. Um, let's read the whole thing. The Lord has declared that the history of the past shall be re rehearsed as we enter upon the closing work. Every truth that he has given for these last days is to be proclaimed to the world. Every pillar that he has established is to be strengthened. We cannot now stand off the foundation, step off the foundation that God has established. We cannot step off it. We cannot now enter into any new organization, for this would mean apostasy from the truth. This statement's going to help somebody. God has given us a foundation, can't step off it. Okay, how can you, next page. How can you keep from being deceived? I told you I'd give you three things, but this is a good class, so I'll give you four. Three ways, here it is. First, the understanding of truth is a matter of the heart as well as the mind. The scribes and Pharisees were brilliant, but they were brilliantly deceived. There will be intellectuals among us. I thank God for every intellectual who knows the word, who's solid in the word. God does not put a premium on ignorance. God does not put a premium on ignorance. But the brilliance of your mind is not going to keep you from being deceived. It's not. It's not. You know, one of the, the classic examples of this is, is, is Dr. Clyde Oxner. Oxner did the primary research on cigarette smoking back 40 years ago. And Oxner was with the New Orleans Clinic. And he developed a smoking machine in which they extracted tar from cigarettes and painted on the back of rats. And he found it was carcinogenic. But all the time he did the research, he continued smoking a couple packs a day. And he saw the direction of the research. And he wrote to one of his friends and he said, I'm sorry to tell you, but although I've discovered that tobacco is a malignant poison, carcinogenic, I continued to smoke, and I have lung cancer. And he died of lung cancer. The brilliance of his mind did not keep him from being deceived. Look, understanding truth is a matter of the heart as well as the mind. Jesus says it this way. If any man will know his will, know of the doctrine. If any man will do his will, he'll know of the doctrine. How can I be sure not to be deceived? To be on my knees saying, Jesus, whatever you want me to do, I want to do it. My mind is no match for Satan's mind. But as I come in contact with the living Christ as he lives in my heart, as my life reflects Jesus and his grace. Okay, two, understanding truth is a matter of knowing God's will as revealed in his word. I will never keep from being deceived unless my mind is saturated with the word of God. Three, understanding truth involves a willingness to stand for God when he reveals it, even if it's not the popular thing to do. If you and I get out of this world alive, there will be some time where we're going to have to take a stand for truth that's not popular. Four, understanding truth involves the willingness to accept as far as possible the authority of God's church. Now, God's church does not have authority in every area of your life. You have to make personal decisions. God's church doesn't tell you, uh, get up in the morning at this time, worship at this time, eat this, eat that. No. But God does have a church with authority. 
And I will tell you, there are going to be some decisions that are made in the near future by the corporate church that some people are not going to like at all. And they're going to be faced with a decision, an incredibly important decision. Because what if the corporate body of the church makes a decision that in your view is not in harmony with Scripture, whatever side of particular questions you're on. The decision that every one of us are going to have to make is, is this issue one worth my splitting the church over with my personal influence? And that's a tough question. How can, Now, remember I told you there'd be a surprise at the end of class. I've got one minute, and here's my surprise to you. Something I came across that I verified with the White Estate just the other day. The year is 1858. You do not have this in your material. I didn't give it to you consciously. Okay, the year is 1858. S.N. Haskell is studying the Bible. And as he's studying the Bible, he comes across the reality in Scripture that swine's flesh is not in harmony with God's will. That's a logical conclusion, isn't it? Okay, he comes across that. At that time, the health vision that God gave to the Seventh Avenue Church was not until, tell me, 18 what? 63. So this would be five years before what? The health vision, okay? Five years before. Haskell comes across this, and he writes to Ellen White. Not only does he write to Ellen White, but he begins teaching that pork is not in harmony with God's will. Now, that's pretty innocent, isn't it? That's pretty, pretty logical. Here's the surprise, what Ellen White writes back to him. Here's the surprise. I'm going to read it to you. I saw that your views concerning swine's flesh, in which... Let me go down and pick this up. Okay. Right here. I saw that your views concerning swine's flesh, would prove no injury if you have them to yourselves. But in your judgment and opinion, you have made this question a test. And your actions have plainly showed your faith in this matter. If God requires his people to abstain from swine's flesh, he will convict them on the matter. He is just as willing to show his honest children their duty as to show their duty to individuals upon whom he has not laid the burden of his work. If it is the duty of the church to abstain from swine's flesh... God will discover it to more than two or three. He'll teach his church their duty. God is not leading out a people. God is leading out a people, not a few separate individuals here and there, one believing this thing and another that. Some run ahead of where the angels are leading his people. I saw that the angels of God would lead his people no faster than they could receive and act upon the important truths communicated to them. Can you be ever so right and ever so wrong? What was Haskell's problem? Did Haskell discover truth in the Bible? Did he? But was it God's time for that truth to be introduced in the way he introduced it? What was, that hap what was happening because he did that? He was dividing churches. And what does Ellen White counsel him? She says, my dear brother, God is leading a body of believers along. And you may see something in Scripture that may be ever so right, but it is not worth dividing the church over. Pray, seek God, let God bring his church together. 
Did God do that? Five years later, didn't he? When was it? 1863. The brethren studied that question. God gave to Ellen White the health vision and the pork issue was settled. We leave this class with these thoughts. Knowing Christ, knowing his word, knowing his last day message will protect us from heresies. But filling our, and filling our minds with his truth in harmony with his church will lead us together. But there are times in a local congregation where to press our ways when that congregation is not ready for it simply divides the congregation. I praise God. They leads his people. I have an entire paper uh, called Four Pages on discerning new light, and it's simply a compilation that we worked with the White Estate on this week that will help churches who are facing all kind of issues of how to discern that. Um, I can get this copied, and um, if you want it, the best thing to do is, uh, I'll see if I can get it copied and uh, leave it out at the desk out there later, and just come by and say I attended Pastor Finley's class. I'll give it to Audioverse, and uh, you'll post it on Audioverse? Okay. And uh, Audioverse, and we, we work together for many years, so that's the simple way to do it. Post it on Audioverse, go to Audioverse, I'll drive people to your website, and you'll solve a problem for me. Okay, let's pray. We're going to pray, folks. Let's stand to pray. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you that there is no leader like Jesus. Thank you so that this church is in your hands that this church is going to triumph. There will be some falsehoods. There will be deceptions. There will be every wind of doctrine blowing. There will be issues on the right and issues on the left. And Lord, I pray thee that you'd keep us in the middle of God's road. you keep us centered on Christ, centered on your word, centered on your will. Send us from this place with a confidence that you're going to lead your people in triumph. And Lord, help us to cherish the unity of your church like you cherish it. I pray thee in Christ's name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.